Welcome to Hunts and Unicorns. I'm Simon Kutis and I'm joined by my co-host, Oli Kune. Welcome to the show, everyone. And it's a pleasure to welcome Philip van der Vilt. Philip, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. First of all, thank you so much for inviting us into your lovely offices. I mean, it's great. Uh, it's a great setting. Yeah, welcome to London. Yeah, welcome to Samsara. Amazing. So, Philip, it's, it's an incredible, incredible career that you've had. You've worked at some of the largest, some of the most important technology companies in the world, the likes of ServiceNow, a success story which is well documented, 87 billion market cap at the moment, I believe, some incredible acquisitions that you've been part of, but actually you've been part of some of the most prolific and some of the most revered leadership regimes and your, your exposure to those regimes and, and obviously your career. We're really genuinely very excited to talk about the, uh, the, the journey. Currently, you're at Samsara, 930 million funding from A16Z, A16Z in particular, one of your lead investors. I mean, it's a great, great company to be at and we're really looking forward to hearing about the mission here because you guys are really onto something quite special. Yeah, and I'm happy to share, so. So, take us right to the beginning. Right at the beginning, okay. Uh, unfortunately, that's many, many years back, <laughs> right? As you can see by, by my hair, the color of my hair. I always believed I wanted to be in advertising, right? And that's, that's I, I literally started my career in, in, in advertising. And I'm not kidding you. But there was a moment in time where we spent, and I'm not kidding you, half a day, we were shooting a commercial for a bakery shop. And half a day, we had a discussion with the team about, you know, in the background, obviously there was bread. If it had to be brown or white bread. I'm not kidding. We spent half the day on that. And I was driving back in my little car back then. And I was like, I'm not sure if this makes me happy. I'm not so sure. So that's how I started. I got a call at that point in time from a headhunter. And back in the time we had guilders, guilders, right? And he said, Philip, how do you feel about making 100,000 guilders a year? And I tell you, that was a huge amount, right? So I was like, okay, who, you know, I need to kill someone for that, I guess, right? But I said, I'm in. And that's how I ended up, my first sales role, sales role, the company called Nasha Tech, which is part of Rico, which Xerox competitions, Xerox competitor. Such an amazing learning school for learning, you know, the art of selling. And that's basically where I feel my career started in, uh, in sales. Different world then, obviously, it was um, a, a very different, yeah, so it was during the kind of the dot-com boom at the time, right? Yeah, I've, I've been spending, I spent a few years there and then the dot-com boom came up and it was just chaos, it was just pure chaos. No one really understood anything about it, but you had to feel like I got to be part of that, right? So. Uh, and a friend of mine, I, I shared with him, like, I, I think I want to be part of that. There's something happening. He said, uh, there's someone here, my network, right? Why don't you call that, that particular gentleman? It was a, a wonderful gentleman, born and raised in Amsterdam, bullish, loud, very confident. And we agreed to meet in a pub. Um, it was actually not a pub, it was a, a, a hotel somewhere around Amsterdam. And I remember that we ended up in the bar drinking whiskeys, right? It was, very strange interview, but I was like, okay, it's probably how it's supposed to be. And I went home and my wife asked me, like, how did it go? I think, yeah, it went okay, I got the job. She said, congratulations, so what are you gonna do? I said, I don't know. <laughs> she said, what do you mean? I don't know, didn't you ask? I said, yeah, I did, but he didn't know either. And I'm not kidding you, I'm not kidding you, it was crazy times. So that's how I ended up in my first software sales uh, role. So. 
And then obviously, um, you know, you, 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 you began obviously as a, as a kind of an individual contributor, um, obviously really learning your trade and yeah. kind of developing. What, what were the kind of the, what were your kind of early pivotal moments in your career? What were the kind of the foundations that really helped to, to lay the foundations of who you became? Yeah, my first learnings, I guess, around that time were probably not the, the good learnings, but not maybe the best experience. Because there was a time that, you know, when internet came up, right? There was a world with no internet before that. People believed that the world would change forever. Forever. It doesn't matter if you would ever make profit or it was just about growth and everything would be fine. So I remember, you know, we, we had a, a company where it definitely not cash flow positive, right? But no one seems to worry about it. No one seems to worry about it. I remember going to Cannes, Monaco, that area, with the whole European team, sitting in a restaurant outside on the beach, right? And serving us a lovely dinner. And they were just serving the lobster. I remember that very well. And somebody dropped his plate. You know how it is in a restaurant. If someone drops his plate, you're like, what's happening? And then you continue the conversation. And another plate dropped. And another one. And everybody stood up, took his plate with fresh lobster. I'm not kidding. And started throwing it. The guy that served us at that point in time was running for his life. Because literally, the plates were throwing at him left and right. What happened to be the case the whole concept was you buy the place and you burn it down. You literally burn it down on the beach and the next morning they build it up again for the next party. Can you imagine the waste? It, it is vulgar almost yeah. if you think about it. But back in the years, there was like, yeah, that's how we do stuff. So it was, and, and there were a lot of those kind of things. You realize like something wasn't right, but as a youngster coming into the industry, I was just eyes wide open, like, what's this? You know what I mean? So lessons learned, probably about values. Value. What is a, does a good company look like, right? No one seemed to care back in the years about shareholders, you know, doing the right things for the customer. It was a lot about me, me, me. So I think that, although it might be a negative lesson, but that's always something that stuck with me. What's interesting is obviously, you know, it's well documented what happened with the kind of the boom and the bust of the dot-com. Yeah. Obviously, you can see that that was obviously really kind of, it was a lot of hot air and obviously it was immense highs, but actually a lot of the learnings again are on the way back down. And obviously we're, we're, we're in a, it's very relevant and very topical right now that we are obviously in a much more difficult climate, but obviously what did you learn on the way down? And, and again, how did that help you to kind of build your career? Yeah, that's a great question. Personally, I had my best years in the downturns funny enough, because all the bullshit was out of the door, or the BS, I should say, probably. It was out of the door. You're left alone with people that are probably as committed and as determined as you are, if you know what I mean. And all of a sudden, the priorities are much more clear. You know what I mean? So the downturn, it's about what are the priorities, what to focus on, what makes you survive. You know what I mean? And it, I think it's a great lesson. And you learn to be humble. To be humble, I really mean that. I mean, sometimes the tech can be so overwhelming and so extraordinary in, in how we treat people and reward people that people, they're not grounded anymore. If you, go, if you are in a downturn, it, it makes you grounded. It, it helps you focus on the right things. It makes you better. It really makes you better. So I would say to anyone, a downturn is an absolute opportunity. And again, I had my best financial returns during the downturns. Do you think people that experience the downturn 
now are less or then are less worried about the downturn that we're seeing at the moment? 100%. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not worried about anything. I've, I've, this is my third or my fourth now, yeah. right? You've seen it and you know it's going to be it's going to be okay again, right? But it's about okay, hang on. You need to steer the ship, stay on deck, yeah. keep on focusing on what north is and, and 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 go, right? And yeah, you need to work hard. But I was reading an inter interesting article about the downturn in uh, was in in Monday's newspaper where obviously it's not a great place to be at right now in Silicon Valley with all the layoffs and stuff like that. But it also said that some people that used to work 25 hours now go back to 40 hours, meaning, okay, get real, guys. Yeah. You know what I mean? you got a job to do, so it's not all negative, if I'm yeah. honest. So obviously, um, a, a real kind of pivotal moment in your career was data domain. Why was that so important? And just take us back, because you were obviously working very closely with Frank Slootman at the time. That was, the, yep. the, that was your first exposure to Frank? Yeah. Yeah. So just tell us a little bit about that time because that was quite a quite an interesting. Yeah, process. that was absolutely interesting. It was a phenomenal time. Um, and I was not. If you say Frank, Frank Slootman, CEO, then I think you also need to mention Dave Snyder, CRO, and probably Frank Scapelli, CFO. I mean, the three of them, phenomenal. Um, I think it was Frank's first job as a CEO of Data Domain, a relatively small startup back uh, back in the years, and just went public. I served under him and helping in uh, in Europe, and those were the days to, to to you know to set the scene that he would come over. He would call. He said, "Philip, I'm coming over from the U.S." And then his mom would still live in the Netherlands. So literally, my own little car. I would pick him up early mornings and honk the horn, <laughs> and then Frank and his mom would come outside. He would kiss his mom goodbye, and, and we would be in my little car driving all day visit clients, you know what I mean? Customers, and not CEOs, but if you were lucky, you would meet a CIO, and that's how we, together, and with many, many other people, tried to get the business started. Yeah, the early days. So your role at Data Domain was the VP Amir, was it, at that point, or? No, 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 it's, it's, um, it, it's not. It, I was uh, running a region uh, for a while. I had phenomenal people working with me, and, and so we did really, really well. We had an Amir leader back then, um, at that point, at a certain point in time, he left. And I thought, I, I'm going to have to give me a job. This is mine, right? I, I'm, I'm the best. This is mine. They, they can't ignore me, right? So I went to the US, spoke to all the executives, ended up in front of Frank. And Frank said, no. Typical Frank style, no. I said, what do you mean, no? I've done this and that. And he said, Philip, you need more experience. And that's the number one answer as a young rookie that you don't want to hear. Because how do you, beat, how do you answer that, yeah. right? So I didn't get the job. Went back, angry, upset, pissed. You know, oh, I'm gonna leave data domain. This is no good. Didn't do it. Two, three months later, uh, a bidding war started between Network Appliance and EMC, which is today's Dell EMC, and we got acquired by EMC. Why this is relevant? Because I'll answer your question uh, a little bit. Um, many years later, I think it probably has been ten years later. I was having a, a coffee with Mike Scapelli, the CFO. And we were chatting a little bit about those times. And he said, oh, I remember you came over. I said, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a great experience. He said, you guys didn't give me the job. Frank didn't give me the job. He said, yeah, but didn't he tell you why? He said, yeah, he did. Not enough experience. He said, no, no, you idiot. Back then, we just got the first biddings coming in. We knew we would, have, we would be acquired. If you beat the president of EMEA, that's the first role they, they cut. So Frank was protecting you. 
never knew that. Ten years later, I got to learn that story. So back to your question. I've been fortunate and lucky because I've been working with the best people in the industry that, that are not just great in what they do, but they have outstanding values and they really mean well. So that's Dayton Win. Yeah, so obviously Frank, Frank's leadership style is, 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 you know, is very well documented in terms of you know, you know, how direct and how in, in, incisive he is. Yeah. What did you have to change in order to really meet the standards that were required? Yeah, it's more a question for Frank than for me, obviously. But I think what he saw was a... First of all, I'm Dutch, so I'm not that impressed by him being so direct, right? It's harder for, hard for people sometimes to read that. I think I'm probably naturally a bit more comfortable with that. Um, so maybe that was a little bit easier. Frank is not the kind of guy that makes friendships and you're there because you're a friend. Forget about that one, yeah. right? You got to deliver. But I was, to an extent still am, I'm not young anymore, but definitely ambitious and, and goal-getter, right? It was everything about the goal. And I think he saw the hunger and the need and the will to, to make it happen. You know, Frank talks a lot about special forces, special operations. You know, he's really into the, the military stuff. So, well, I, I think I was definitely one of those special forces that, you know, knife between the teeth and, and go out. <clears throat> where did that come from? You know, where, where, what was it that set those foundations in you and kind of defined those character traits in you? Is that something you just had or, or were there? It's, it's a couple of things, but the number one thing, then we go a little bit deeper, is control, right? I learned during my, my, my career, I want to be in control. If, if you go to startups, you own your own, you, you, you control your own destiny. Either you make it or you don't, you know what I mean? You start with an empty laptop, the phone is not ringing, you have to make it happen, it's on you. And of course, with the, the team you create around you. If you're part of, you know, I got acquired by EMC Dell two times for the company I worked for, phenomenal company. But all of a sudden, you're surrounded with lots of other people that direct or indirect impact your, how you do, in the end, your paycheck. And it's great if they're better than you. Like, oh, well, please join my team. But if they're not great, I'm like, okay, hang on, get out of my way, right? So that level of control you can find and, and create and, and be in control of your own destiny is something that you find in a startup more than anything else. And two, it's about you know, being an athlete, as in test yourself. How far do you, how far can you get? You know what I mean? Do you want to be mediocre? No, of course, no one wants to be mediocre, right? I guess. So how far can you push your limits? How I'm competitive like most people are, right? Am I better than you? Am I better than you? Let's, let's come on, let's battle in, in the right way. <laughs> yeah, so I think those two things are probably what drives me. Frank talks about obviously big audacious plans and think big. Obviously at that point, you've got Data Main acquired by Delhi MC. What were you thinking at that stage? You know, because obviously, if you're if you're thinking big and you're thinking of a big audacious plan, where what what goals are you setting yourself at that point in your of your mm. career? I, I mentioned Dave Snyder. You know, you had Frank, CEO, steering the ship, captain. You know, clearly, but Dave Snyder gave the organization a heart and a soul. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It was a perfect combination. And I remember uh, we being acquired. Uh, Dave coming over and said to me, Philip, I'd like you to stay two years in EMC. And I said, what? So what do you mean? He said, Philip, you got a lot of talent, but you need to learn how organizations scale. I want you to stay and see how EMC is doing now. 
is I'll make sure you get you know the right job so you can see things happening. But I like to stay to. I said, I, I don't want to stay. It's a great company, but it's too big. He said, up to you. But I like you to stay. I stayed. He left within a month or two, and I was like, okay, that's great. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it was the best advice ever. You know, again, if you have someone like Frank said, hey. I think it's better not to give him the job because, you know, we're going to be acquired. Dave Snyder saying, hey, stay two years and learn how to scale because shortly after, you know, a few years after, he picked me up and said, okay, now you're going to run ServiceNow in EMEA. I couldn't have done that successfully, ServiceNow, without having spent two years in EMC. So finding leaders that sincerely care about you and your career, I mean, how great is that? Yeah. What did you learn when you were at Dell EMC? What is it that he obviously knew that that experience was going to be crucial. But what were the things that you learned during that experience? Yeah, I think probably more than anything, work cross-functionally, right? So data domain was kind of a one-trick pony. I don't, I hope I don't hurt anyone's feelings here, but we were selling basically one product. Now, if you come to EMC, they got a portfolio of products. So you got the business units. You got, you know, you need to work cross-functionally. You got the cross-sell. You got the upsell. You got different buying personas to navigate your way through that externally, but internally. That's how you get to understand how organizations scale, you know, and how to align things. I ended up in a sort of overlay role as a leader in an overlay role. Man, I told you. Being in control of my destiny is so important for me. And now I'm an overlay sales. Man, did I learn some lessons? That's a freaking hard job, right? It's not always the most respected job. I can tell you it was the hardest job. How do I make you work for me, right? While you don't report to me. How do I make my agenda important to you? Amazing lessons, amazing lessons. That is obviously really important foundations. Obviously, ServiceNow being such a kind of a multi um, solution offering, obviously, yeah. and the diversification that obviously were the foundation. But but it's interesting how even Dave, I, I don't know whether he was aware of the ServiceNow project at that time, but he knew he was going to be part of something and he was already grooming you for that, potentially. Do, do you agree yeah. with that? Well, maybe. Maybe he wasn't. Maybe it wasn't about him as in, okay, I think I can use Philip for another job next, uh, next month, next year. Maybe he was just sincere in, hey, I care about talent. He does. He cares about people. This is really in your interest. I see the talent, but a couple of skill sets that you need to develop. Maybe it was just that. So, Philippe, tell us, obviously, Data Domain acquired by Dell EMC 2012, moved on to Commvault. Tell us about that journey. Yeah, so... Um, I had the opportunity to run Comfort in EMEA. It was my first EMEA, uh, to run it uh, on an EMEA level. So I was very keen to learn that and to, uh, and to do that. It's, it's been a great company, great people. I, pro I probably learned two things that I still carry with me or carry forward. I think I've been, I probably made every mistake out of the book. You know what I mean? I tried very hard, and to some extent, I guess I was a good manager. And, and a different, but that doesn't define you as a good leader. You know what I mean? And the difference is something like manager is all about role clarity. You know, hiring the right people, setting setting the right calls, goal clarity, doing the right thing, building a good machinery. That's fantastic, great. That's eighty percent of the job. But a good leader is about people seeing the person on the other side of the table. And not as a problem to solve, but as an opportunity to develop. That, that is leadership. I wasn't there. I was, I was at the management level, if you, if you know what I mean. So I, I learned a lot, but 
I guess I could have been, I could have been better. So that's one. And then two, I was young and ambitious and I saw very much an opportunity with Comfort to grow, right? But what I learned over the years is that when you join an organization, whatever organization that is, you need to speak to the executives and say, hey, where do you want to take this company? And does that match with your plans, your ambition, right? And if that's the case, fantastic. If it's not the case, don't even bother, because you will not change the course of, of, of the company. You, you will not change the direction, so to say, right? And it became clear at some point in time that where I think we should go to in, in, in how ambitious I was, was not matching where they wanted to take the company. So that's a lesson. You know, if you want to ever want to select a company, you, you, you figure out where, what company do I want to join? Figure that out, right? What, what, where do, what, do they want to take the, uh, the company to? What's the, what are the exit plans? What is the level of ambition? Does that match yours? Fantastic. If not, don't join. So what are the other things that you look at when you are trying to identify the right opportunity or the right organization to join? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. A couple of very obvious things, at least for me. I, I'm born and raised in Silicon Valley, as, as so to say. I, I always work for US companies. I think the way they build and scale businesses is, is just great. And there's a formula behind it. And I, I get it. it. It sits on my DNA. If I, I you know, spoke to quite a few European companies, and it's so different, right? The, you find amazing technology, and let's say they're doing 20 million of revenue a year. So, okay, very small, still 20 million. How much you want to grow next year? And then the European leader will say, I'm thinking about 30% next year. And you're like, you're forgetting about a zero. It should be 300%, <laughs> right? Well, we think 30% is okay to start. You're like, how, do we, how are we going to conquer the world? Because that's what it's like, right? That's the ambition. You, you want to be number one. You want to conquer the world. How are you going to do that with 30% growth? No way. And then you say, okay, how do we do? Is there, there's no equity plan. Yeah, there's equity, Philip. You, you, you know, you, you're part of the leadership team. You get your equity. She yeah, that's not what I mean. What about my people, my team? My, no, not for the people. I said, well, hang on. If they're in the trenches with me, they get the same that I get. You know what I mean? U.S. companies do that out of the box. This is the formula of success. European companies, not so much. It was not a company. Great technology, great technology, great people. But I was looking at seven white dudes, Thai, suit, German, pomp. Like, okay, I think the world moved on from that. You know what I mean? So, and again, it's more probably how I'm wired, but that's why I feel very much at home in U.S. companies. I think there's a reason why they're so successful. So that's one. Two, sell something personally that is strategic. What do you mean? You use an analogy, aspirin versus um, yeah, aspirin yeah, yeah, versus vitamins. Yeah, many years ago, uh, you know, when I was a young chap and I was having dinner with uh, a couple of investors, and I was sitting to an elderly guy, and he called me nonstop, son, hey, son, hey, son, you know, like a father figure. And he said, like, hey, what have you been doing? And, and I told him a little bit, and, uh, and I asked him exactly the same question. You as an investor, how do you make that decision? He said, Philip, it's not that difficult. He said, it's about vitamins and aspirins. Like, hey, that sounds something that I probably can understand. What do you mean? He said, well, it's very simple. If a client has a real headache, a splitting headache, and guess what? You have an aspirin? Fantastic. That's the place to join. He said, but if the customer is not having a headache, but it's not feeling so well, eh, okay, it's bothering, but not so much, and you have a vitamin that may or may not solve the problem, forget about it, Philip. Aspirin versus vitamin. And it sounds so simple, but if you look back, 
in the company. I, I clearly see that one or two companies that I joined in the past were selling vitamins. In other words, how important is it? How compelling is it? How strategic is it? You know what I mean? It's very simple, but it really, really works. Uh, so that's definitely one. But leadership is another one. I've been fortunate to work with amazing leaders. How great is it to work with the best of the best? How, comf how more comfortable do you feel if you show up with a Frank or a John or a Bill? I mean, that's amazing. So definitely one of the things to, uh, to look into. That's probably a great segue because you were obviously exposed to those leaders at ServiceNow. You're obviously yeah. referring to the multi-CEO regime at ServiceNow. Obviously, it's, it's an absolute rocket ship and just a, a great journey. So tell us a little bit about that leadership because they were all quite different. They, all, they were all big characters in their own way, but yet together, it was a kind of a formidable, formidable. You mean all the, the CEO? Well, yeah. Yeah, so I will explain it, but, but one thing to understand, to give a little bit of context here, is to understand how organizations grow, right? Startups and scale-ups all the way to, uh, to, to big companies. And a couple of phases to, to, uh, to understand. And, and phase one, I would say, is pre-IPO. Typically, Silicon Valley, US, you start, you raise money, and, and basically you go out in the US and find figure out, is there a market for what I'm doing? And you go from zero to 100, zero to 500, something like that, US focused, right? When you do that successfully, then you can go IPO phase two, right? You raise a lot of money, then you hire uh, Dutchies like me and say, hey, build and scale in EMEA um, with the money you, uh, you raised. The priorities are very clear. It's all, you need to have the best product out there because more often than not, you're entering an existing market with existing relationships. And why do you think anyone is going to give you a piece of the pie? No way. So you have to fight your way into it. You can only do it if your product is better than anyone else, that's one. And two, you scale faster than anyone's. Because it's a red race. If you don't do it, somebody else is doing it, right? So two priorities. If you do that successfully, you get to a billion, something like that, give and take, phase two. And then phase number three is then you sort of you know, you made your present, you're there to stay. You start to figure out how do we make this a long and enduring company. So your priorities change. You think about branding, you think about diversity and inclusion, you think about customer success. You, you know, those kind of things start to matter and you continue to scale. And then at some point in time, you start thinking about putting more products, expanding your product portfolio, right? Phase number three, phase number four, et cetera, et cetera. That's how you scale. And back to your question, when I joined, I think ServiceNow did around seven, eight hundred million. So let's say phase number two, right? They just raised money, they were uh, building in Europe. Um, Frank was phenomenal. Frank has a very strong product background. He knows product in and out. And because of his style, you know, he's so focused on certain priorities. And it's very clear what they are, very clear. He's like a general, you know, we're selling, this is what we sell, it's a pen, it's black. So it's not blue, you got it? It's not blue, it's black, go. Together with the team, Mike Scapelli, Dave Snyder, they built a very uh, strong, efficient organization. You know, sometimes you see things are a little bit clunky, systems not working, no, no, from day one. They set it up like, like it's already five million. And that's how they drive very strong execution. That's, that's Frank is phenomenal in, uh, in doing that. When, and already back then, he said like, because we did around seven, eight hundred million, so we started to think like, okay, we're going to hit billion, one billion in um, uh, in a year or so, and we started to think about, okay, what's the plan from one to three billion? And I remember sitting in a meeting and Frank saying, "I'm not sure if I'm going to lead that." I was like, 
What do you mean? Why, why do you say that? Right? It felt a little bit uncomfortable. Frank, you're great. Right? Why, why are you going to do this? Later on, looking back, John Donahoe coming in, I realized how Frank knows exactly where to play, where his key strengths are, you know what I mean? And when to say, like, not somebody else's turn. So he handed it over around a billion, more or less, to, to John Donahoe. Um, John, former CEO of Bain, uh, PayPal, now CEO of Nike, came and you know, the priorities changed to make this a long and enduring company. So it was a, a shift again. Um, how do we build for the long term? You could see that we were selling very successfully, but you could also hear at times customers saying, hey, it's hard to get to success. Okay, if we want to be a long and enduring customer uh, company, success of our customers need to be front and center of what we do. So how do we fix that, right? Customer success and et cetera, et cetera. It was phenomenal. Obviously, he was already back then in the board of Nike. He invited Phil Nike uh, to the meetings. So he was destined to become the CEO of Nike at some point in time. That was kind of not a secret, I would say. So he, he really changed the organization and made it ready for the next, uh, next phase. Um, new products. I mean, back in the years when we were building the plans for one to three billion, we were basically selling one product, more or less. But the projection was when we do three billion, more than 50% is non-IT product we're selling outside of IT. I'm like, how on earth? How on earth is that gonna happen, right? Means like you need to set up new BUs, experiment, bring new products to market and, and scale, right? Sounds easy, but it's not just from a product perspective, but if you, if you start selling to, instead of IT to HR or customer success or, or service managers, that's a whole new ball game, right? New buying personas, new marketing messages, overlay sales or not, how do you do that, product specialist. So the complexity goes up and up and up. Frank handed it over and Frank and John did an amazing job. And then when John was asked to become the president of uh, Nike, Bill McDermott came in, right? Very successful uh, former CEO of SAP. And Bill, Bill is another style, right? John is 100% consulting. I would work, you know, he would come over once in a while and the whole, you know, to Europe and the whole week we would travel and work together. That's phenomenal. Very humble guy, very humble, uh, very sincere, um, huge brain power. Always coaching, non-stop coaching. Bill comes on board, well, put a thousand salespeople in a room, good salespeople in a room. Bill will enter, he's still the best salesman out there. <laughs> he is phenomenal, you know what I mean? So, and Bill is really about shareholder value. You know what I mean? Bringing it up and up and up. He's, he's probably the best sales guy out there in the industry. So yeah, I've been very fortunate with working with all three of them. I think it's really interesting because obviously your position as senior vice president of Amir, you know, Frank's known his place, which is the, you know, up to a billion. What are you thinking at that stage? You know, are you enjoying the journey of that up to a billion? Or are you thinking, do you know what? I want to take this journey again, like you did at EMC and now take it beyond that. Yeah. What, what was it that was no, going that's, that's a great. And... That's a great question. I, you know, it's, it's all about your learning. What I learned to understand not just the chapters, but where do you play, right? And every chapter has different priorities and requires a different leadership style. You need to be able to flex your style as you go through the stages from very direct to, you know, uh, more indirect, cross-functional, etc. Et and I realize that for me, that I consider myself hopefully really good between zero and a billion, right? 
we took ServiceNow back then from uh, EMEA in four years from 250 million to over a billion in four years. Phenomenal. But I could also see how I was reaching the end of the rope. You know what I mean? You go from an organization where you have direct or indirect, but you have control, very important to me, to an organization that becomes so big with many BUs coming from various places, people having direct or indirect impact on your business. Rather than becoming a direct business leader, you're becoming more a president. You need to interact in, in by impacting the other's agenda, influencing, you know, socializing, which is, I'm very mediocre in that, you know what I mean? So I realize I'm really good between a zero and a billion, but after a billion, I'm becoming a very mediocre leader, right? And the question is, do you want to be a mediocre leader? I don't want to be a mediocre leader. You know what I mean? So that was clear for me, like, okay, this, this, is, this is my end, you know, uh, of the journey. That being said, I was like, okay, fine. Um, it gave me, being so uh, lucky to be surrounded by so many great people, being part of so many great companies, I had freedom. And I'm sure that all, we're sitting here with four people, all four of us have a dream like, oh, one day, no Monday mornings, you know, no, no, not to worry about checks to pay or whatever. Wouldn't it be amazing? I tell you. I tried it. It's, it's, I was scared. I was, it was very scaring to learn that what you thought was your dream to do nothing is actually very frightening. Actually very frightening. And the people like a Frank, I remember that he was retired and one day he gave me a ring. He said, Philip, I'm going to start again. I'm going to do uh, snowflake. And I'm like, why? Man, you got, you know, he loves sailing, whatever. You know, why? In my own little world, on a much smaller scale, I realize, yeah, I get it, I get it. In the end, you, you, you learn about what your purpose is, right? And it's not about getting a paycheck. It's not about getting another car, another Patek Philippe or whatever. It, it, it doesn't matter. It's about being relevant, being out there, being part of something. And to sit there on Monday, the phone is not ringing. Tuesday, the phone is not ringing. You feel terrible, you know what I mean? So what it did give me then is the opportunity to do, to pick anything I want. You know what I mean? And to really sit in front of the mirror, look very hard and say, okay, what defines me? What makes me happy? And I realized, I want to go back to the starting line. I want to go back to the starting line. Because if you build startups together, what really stands out is a couple of things. First of all, the relationships you build with people. It's freaking hard, right? People always look at startups when they're successful. Philip, you should have called me. Well, buddy, I did call you, but you were great. You're doing well. You're a big company. You said you're going to be promoted probably to manager. It's not for everybody. It's freaking hard, right? People get frustrated, cry. It's, but it, intensity is amazing. I'm still in touch with so many people from every state I was in, right? Because it builds unique friendships. So that's one. I miss that. I want to be part of it. And two, you know, going through the stages that I've been through, meeting the people that I've been working with, I feel my paycheck is, is people, meaning I work with a generation that is like me, younger, slightly different, but the same will to make something happen and to be able to work with the next level of talent and to build them up. I consider that my paycheck. Don't get me wrong. I want to crush targets, right? <laughs> I want to build this, an amazing company. This has got to be the new service now in Salesforce, and we're well on our way. However, you know, I work with talent here, and if at some point in time I leave, and a few years later I see that they're running the company, man, I would be so proud. 
that is that is kind of what I live for now. I think it's it's a it's a perfect opportunity really now to talk about Samsara really, and obviously you're at that fortunate position that you can now go and assess the market and find out exactly what it is that you want to be going and doing. Yeah, there was something that happened when I was still working at ServiceNow. We went into a factory of a very well-respected company, global, very well-respected company, and as you go into the, the, the factory, what I saw was literally pen and paper. You know, the crew was working on the machines and when something was not working, they put it on paper, put it somewhere on the desk, and then the next morning the maintenance crew would come in, take the paper, okay, we start working on it, and yeah, done the job. And I'm like, it just catched my eyes, like, that's weird, All right? So, when I started to study, I could see that how underserved this market of the physical operations basically is. It's 40% of our GDPR, but literally, you're looking, you know, if you talk about digital, digital, you talk about pen and paper, or maybe an iPad, at best. So I figured out, okay, that's a huge opportunity there. I like to be relevant for clients. What I mean by that, I like to not just sell something, but help and coach clients to success. So with all the experience that IT has, and then bring it into the world of the physical operation, there's a huge opportunity to really improve, not just the performance of the organization, but also to help the leaders there to you know, uh, do better. So that, that's another one. We can become, let's say, the, the system of record for the physical operation, just like ServiceNow, just like Salesforce. I can see so many similarities. Now, we need to make it happen but the opportunity is huge. And then, so, but that's your brain telling you like, okay, tick in the box, tick in the box, tick in the box. But then you got your heart. And you see my story, it's a lot about people, right? So the crew, you know, after serves now, it's, it's, it's sort of, you know, uh, went away. So you look for a new gang or new team to join, right? New tribe. And you look at the leaders of Samsara and you see that they built a company before they successfully sold it to Cisco. Now, that's a, a very important point. Do you stay, enjoy the money, have a fancy job? No, they didn't. As soon as they could, they quit their job, literally got together again, and said, okay, what are we gonna do next? And we're gonna do better, and, and, and even more beautiful than we did the first time. I like that. That is, done it before, but also the ambition to do great things. Back to what I said, where you wanna take it? I'm ambitious too. I want to build a long-lasting company. I want to, 20 years from now, people saying like, my goodness, have you been part of that? I mean, think about if you've been part of Microsoft or Salesforce when it was just five years old. That would have been amazing, all right? So that's exactly what I'm looking at. So speaking to those people, uh, Sanjit uh, and, and others, um, I felt like, yeah, there's a real opportunity to do it again. Uh, and, and, and again, that's so rewarding. So Philip, the Cisco acquisition you're referring to is obviously of Meraki. Correct. And obviously the leadership team behind Samsara are the, the, the founding team of Meraki, which was a, a great success story. How is it working with kind of a second time founding team? I know you've done that previously with, with kind of service now, but what are the advantages of being part of a team that really get go to market? I'm, let me challenge that a little bit. I'm not sure of doing it second time makes you a better CEO by definition. There are a few characteristics that I look for in a CEO, and I don't mind so much if it's a first, second, or third time. Because one of the things that I'm always very keen to explore is that 
quite often you have the founder being the CEO, right? But is he or she aware that he or she may reach the end of the rope? Is he or she, like Fred Luddy did, he handed it over to Frank Slootman. Frank Slootman handed it over to John. Are they self-aware enough to realize it's my time? That's one. Two, they built the company from scratch with some people around them, right? Let's call them your friends, for, for lack of better words. And those friends have built a golden ceiling above your head, but at some point in time, they reach the end of their rope. Are you tough enough as a CEO, determined enough to let them go? Sounds harsh, right? Or are you keeping them in place or around? It sounds harsh, but if you really want to be the number one in the world, if you really want to dominate and crush competition, you got to be re relentless with that. Right. And not many CEOs are willing to do that. And I see that quite often. I think it's even, there's even a name for it, Founder's Syndrome or something like that. So that's, that's another one. And then three, who do you surround yourself with, which is kind of related, right? I mean, if we talk about Frank, Frank is, man, he's great, he's determined, he's brutal, but empathetic? No, I wouldn't call him empathetic but he hired Dave Snyder. Oh, is Dave Snyder empathetic? Fantastic. You know what I mean? Who do you hire around you to, let's say, compensate for the things that you're not great at? Um, if you do those kind of things, if you see that in a CEO, then I don't mind if that's the first, second, or third time, if that makes, makes sense. I've been working for CEOs that did it for a second time, but my goodness, you know, keep, kept on changing priorities, did not know enough about themselves to say, maybe I shouldn't do this, if, if you know what I mean. And if the top starts to, uh, if the trouble starts at the top, man, it's, it really starts raining down there, you know, I realize. So to check or to, yeah, to be aware of who you're working with in the exec team is, is absolutely critical. But again, back to your question, I, I'm, I'm not sure if it mind if I do mind if it's a first, second or third time CEO. In, in the success of an organization, yes, it's good for an individual to have those traits and say, as you said, it doesn't necessarily matter if it's their first or the second. Statistically speaking, do you think that if it was a first time CEO in comparison to a second time CEO, they're gonna to get to where they need to get to quicker? Probably yes. Probably, yeah. 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 You've mentioned a few times that people are really important to you. What, what type of leaders are you trying to nurture here? Athletes. Athletes. What I love about athletes, they're so super clear. Okay, I want to become the best sprinter in the world, whatever it is. Okay, I'm right here. In order to win, I need to run this time. I got a gap. Okay, self-awareness. What am I going to do about it? And then relentlessly train and train and improve yourself. So they're nonstop, you know, trying to make themselves better. That's what I look for. I look more than anything for self-awareness, you know? You don't have to be the best sales leader to lead a sales team. You need to be the best people manager, you know what I mean? If I can, like I said in the beginning, if the, the person on the other side of the table, if you really see that person and spend time sincerely understand what drives the purpose of that person, the talents, and where you can bring that person, how to bring that person up, man, that person will fly, right? Will be working twice as hard because he or she feels like, man, this is about me, right? So, but what it takes is self-awareness because 
there's no answer for stupidity. You know what I mean? If people are not willing to look in the mirror and take a hard look and say, yeah, that's not great. If people are not willing to learn, I mean, there's little I can do for you. So I work with amazing young people with great self-awareness. And I have uh, Luba, for example, coming out of the US. She leads my biggest sales organization here. Coming from the US, she was a sales manager. And now she's coming here. She's staying for two and a half years, then she's gonna go back to, to the US. My, my goal is to bring her back and to get her promoted. Because from a single, how do you say that? You're just being a sales manager of a small team. Now running EMEA, and all of a sudden, she's managing people in France, in Germany, in, in the UK, in Belgium, in the Netherlands. She needs to work on a go-to market, right? It's not an established market. We're building the market. So sit with marketing, sit with ADR functions, sit with HR. How do you hire in France? How do you work with unions? Man, she's going to grow and grow and grow. And then she's going to go back uh, in half a year from now. And I will watch her from a distance strive and be super successful in the US. That's my paycheck, right? I got a, a young chap. I hired him in service now. Not me directly, but as a young chap individual contributor. And he, Managed, he got promoted to first line manager. He's now uh, running my majors team. But if there's someone who's an athlete, it's Martin Bain, it's him, right? Super keen to learn, to develop. He's now running the major teams in all those various countries. So think about it, three years of phenomenal hard work because it isn't easy. But after every conversation, he says like, my goodness, am I learning? And that, that, is, my, that is what I bring to the team, right? So I bring phenomenal opportunity a keen interest to make you better, but in return, I, I expect self-awareness, relentless self-awareness. And that's, yeah, that's the number one thing. I was just about to ask a question around, obviously you've had the, the joyful experience of working with many big US software companies. Yeah. How do you find when they want to enter into the Amir market, what, what do you see as some of the challenges and what are some of your experiences working with US companies really getting to understand the, US, uh, the EMEA market? Yeah, <laughs> there are quite a few, there are quite a few. But the number one thing I would recommend to anyone doing this job is stay focused. The number one mistake, let's call it a mistake people make, is try to be everywhere at all times. Meaning, obviously, your resources are not unlimited. So people see opportunity everywhere in every country. So why don't we go open, you know, businesses in every country in EMEA and spread ourselves thin? I would say almost in every occasion, mistake number one. Pick the right countries and do it right. What I mean by doing right is it's not just about focus on the customer experience. And the customer experience is not just there's a sales rep and a technical person that's selling you something. No, it's about customer success, bringing the customer to a, a proper outcome, right? If, they, if you do business in Germany, right, make sure that if they have a question about the billing, the invoice, that is someone that speaks German. If they have a support call, they speak German. You know what I mean? That you have teams locally in the country that are German or German speaking. So do it properly. Pick your customer and light them. Make them lighthouse account. Let them be so happy that they come and state and said, Philip, this is the freaking best thing that ever happened to my company, ever me personally, right? And you go deeper and deeper and deeper. I'm only in four markets right now, four. But we go really deep, I'm gonna before I even think about going to other markets. So that's advice number one. Number two, I think, you know what? The Europeans are, 
quite focal about right, how the US does not understand Europe. I think it's nonsense. I think 90, 95% is the same, 95%. What we have in common is so much more than what, where the differences are. Yes, there's a little bit of nuances in the various markets, but it's about gaining trust, building proper relationship with your peers in the US. Don't think that the US wants to take your daily decision. None of that, they, they, don't, they don't want to do that, but you need to give them the confidence that you have a plan, that you know what you're doing, right? And you keep on communicating the progress, right? If you do that, you get all the freedom in the world. So I think those are the, probably the, the most two common things that I see where company, where people are starting. Yeah. What's the, what's the big plans? Obviously you speak about big plans and setting yourself big goals. I've actually got two questions. One, one's your personal big goal. You know, where do you see yourself? Do you have the aspiration to become a CRO? Where's your personal aspirations going and, and what's next for you? Ha, I'm going to disappoint you. No, I don't want to be a CRO. I don't want to run a global organization. That sounds not very ambitious, so I need to spend a minute here. <laughs> Frank, don't uh, listen to this. <laughs> yeah, no, no, yeah, well, whatever. First of all, I mean, if I want to be a CRO, I want to be a CRO in a great company, right? Um, I don't want to be, what's the expression? Better be a small fish in a big pound than the other way around. I told you I'm a Silicon Valley kid, so that has to be a US company. It's not like it, there's no opportunity, but it means I have to relocate to the US, okay? And um, my family's here, my kids are here. Um, I, uh, you know, my, my daughter just moved out of house, uh, living in Amsterdam, but I cannot imagine a life not being close to my, my kids. So that's out of the question. Secondly, look in the mirror, how good of a CRO will I be? Even CEOs sometimes, you know, um, it's an opportunity. How good of a CEO will I be? I'm not sure if I'm gonna be a great CEO. I have some shortfalls, right? Where I feel like, uh, gaps, let's call it gaps, in, in where I really need to work hard on in order to become great. Do I wanna do that or do I want something else? I think I wanna be, again, hopefully a great uh, president of EMEA, build a long lasting company, but on top of that, I have this crazy dream, and I shared it one day with the team that I, I'm old and gray, as they say, you're gray already, but let's say old. I'm sitting in front of a huge building, it says Samsara, and the people that I'm leading now are coming in, and they're vice president, or president, and they run a huge company, or a huge organization. That would be fantastic. That's kind of, that's why I say my paycheck is people right now. Good. So we spoke about your ambitions, Philip. Um, what's the, the big ambition for Samsara? How, where are we gonna take this organization to? Yeah, we continue to grow aggressively, right? Um, you see last uh, earnings report still growing 40 to 50%, doing 800 million about ARR. So that tells you how promising it is and you know, still hiring a lot of people. So that's fantastic. From a product perspective, we really wanna become the system of record for the world of physical operations. I think we got an amazing opportunity. And, but what does it mean if you continue to scale? It means, means two things, both for I would say clients and staff. And let me go a little bit back to my heritage. Being from Holland, I literally lived on the countryside for, for many, many years. And my neighbors were dairy farmers, right? And I know how some people feel and think about farmers, but my goodness, if you really start digging into what they're doing in the business, that is, that is impressive. And I learned a lesson that I still use today, which is happy cows give more milk. And everybody starts laughing like, hey, that's funny. But here's the lesson I learned from my, from my dairy farm. He said, Philip, if you take a cow, 
if you really get, want to get the maximum out of her, she gives about 10,000 liters of milk a year. But you know what? She's very fragile. It's like an athlete. Very often she's sick. She's not 100% comfortable, right? So that's probably not where you want to go. If you don't do anything, she gives 6,000 liters. She said, so you need to find a middle ground where you get good performance, but she's happy and, and, and thriving. He said, for me, it's 8,000. 8,000 liters works for her, works for me, right? And I, I bring that to the teams and I said, listen, make sure you delight your customer. Don't make the sale and run away. Travel with the customer all the way to the end. Help and coach. Make him or her happy. Happy gals, what they do, more milk. I mean, they keep on upselling, to, they allow it to upsell, cross-sell. It's unbelievable how many warm interactions we get from our clients to other prospects because they like what we do, not for their company, but also for their career. They become better, more successful because of our technology. Again, it's tech for people. But then you take it inside and say, well, hang on, if our customers are really doing well now, we continue to do well, and if we do the same thing with our employees, we talked quite a lot about it, if I can really help the other person, the other side, to perform better, to do better, the impact it has not on the individual, and it, but also this, that person you talk to is a hero at home, she's a brother, sister, a husband, or whatever, you know what I mean? The impact you have, we've all been there as kids, the impact that the jobs have on the family, don't underestimate it. So if you really make them strive, be happy, and grow, the impact you have on them directly and indirectly, maybe the families, I mean, that's phenomenal. So happy gals, again, give more milk. They go to hell and back for you if you really care about them. So if you light your customer, you enlighten your employees, trust me, the numbers will come. And you find, it's about finding the right balance. So super aggressive goals, super ambitious, but with a clear eye on the well-being of my clients and my employees. That is that's how I see the future. I know that was going to be our last question, but another question, how do you think you've changed as a leader from data domain to where you are today? Oh, phenomenal change, phenomenal change. I wasn't like that at all, right? I was, I was goal focused. I told you, I, I, was a, I was a manager at best. I was goal oriented. Let's make the goal, crush the goals, right? I had to learn, it was actually John Donahoe. John Donahoe, you know, ex-CEO of Bain, great coach. And he gave me a phenomenal opportunity. He said, Philip, I want to invest in you. And I'm gonna send you to the US for a week. You have five coaches all day around you. You do pre-work with the coach and after that you're gonna have one year another coach. He said, you pick the topic. He said, I'm not gonna pick the topic, you pick the topic. But I'll ask you one thing. Go one step further than you ever did. That's all I'm asking. And I realized, you know, to go from good to great, I had to learn how to impact people, right? Not to see the people at the other side as a problem to solve, but as an opportunity to grow. Sounds easy, but that was a big thing. So he gave me the opportunity. I studied that really hard, really, really hard, which is incredibly difficult, right? Because it's about you and, and how you need to change, because that's where it starts, right? It changed my career phenomenally. It changed my, my private life as well, right? And it's all because of, again, self-awareness, and I knew it, I knew I had to work on that. But it takes you then to say, okay, now I'm gonna jump, right? And I'm, I was fortunate, sorry, to have the opportunity to jump 
um, I did it, and it's been life-changing, literally life-changing. Um, and I see in the feedback, the response, how the team is interacting, how well it's been received, you know what I mean? But you need to make sure it's sincere. Knowing you, what advice would you give your younger self at that point? I stopped learning. And I don't know if that's typical to salespeople, but you, yeah, you, you come from university where you, where you learn all the time and then you go into your job, it keeps you busy, you work very hard to, to be the best and, and to, to make a career. But somehow I stopped learning. Learning means next to your bed, there's a book. Is it a novel about whatever? Or is it a book about how to become a better leader or whatever, you know what I mean? But also feedback. I'm, I'm becoming a, I became a feedback jumpy. Dare to ask feedback, incorporate it in the day-to-day -day activities. I can tell you, my team, and not just my leaders, way below, they know if you speak to Philip, he's gonna ask a question. How do I do for you? They have to give me feedback. In the beginning, it's like, okay, that's a bit odd, right? To give the, the ball. But I say, hey, be it is, tell me how I'm doing. Are there things I'm missing? Make that part, and now the team is so comfortable. So comfortable. Sometimes I don't even have to ask. I already give it. Okay. Um, so be self-aware. Learn where you, you know. Identify your gaps. Learn and constantly ask feedback. Surround yourself with people that are not brave enough. Create an environment of trust where they say, "Philip, I disagree." Or Philip, that wasn't great. You know what I mean? Sam will come up the call today, and, and he will say, "Like this was great, but that was not great." I love that. So I talked about being an athlete. I think I'm saying the same thing. You have to be an athlete. Um, and I got phenomenal athletes in this company. So this is the point where we reflect on what we've heard today, Philip. I think the thing that really jumps out is the topic of self-awareness. And I think what's really interesting is that you're someone that's obviously been in the game for a considerable amount of time. You've seen the markets go up, you've seen the markets come back down. And at every stage, there's been an opportunity for you to learn and to develop and to grow. And I think what's really key is that it's not about having self-limiting beliefs. It's not about saying, this is my limit in terms of I'm not good enough. It's about being aware of where am I? Where are my gaps? Where do I need to work? Where can I develop? But also giving yourself the opportunity to have the options to then say, what do I really want to do? And what is my sweet spot? And it's not about having limitations, as I said. It's about understanding where can I bring the most value where, can, where, where do I want to bring the most value and really finding that? And I think just hearing the amazing experience, the incredible success, the organizations that you've been part of, the leadership regimes that you've, you've, you've served under, I think it's fantastic to, to, to really uh, spend the time with you today. So thank you so much for welcome, welcoming us into these amazing offices. And, uh, and really spending time with you. And thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. It makes me realize I've been very fortunate to work with so many great people and still do, by the way. Thank you for the interview. Absolutely my pleasure. Thanks ever so much for joining us today. So to all of our listeners, thank you so much for joining in with us today. Um, if you've liked what you've heard, please do subscribe to our various channels on YouTube, iTunes, and Spotify. And we look forward to welcoming you back for another session soon. Thank you.